0: Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. There are many people in the world who believe that China's economic rise was partly enabled by its theft of ideas. Donald Trump certainly took that view. In May 2020, Mr Trump said that China has ripped off the United States like no one has ever done before. Mr Trump continued that China has raided our factories, offshored our jobs, gutted our industries, stole our intellectual property and violated commitments under the World Trade Organization. Well, while that all sounds very Trumpish, there are also plenty of harsh critics of China within the Biden administration. Top level diplomatic meetings have been fractious to say the least. And American businesses face a dilemma. They want to continue to tap China's vast market and many have established strong customer bases in the country. Take the Disneyland theme park in Shanghai, for example. 12 million people went there to play in 2018 before COVID started to spread. But of course, American business leaders don't want to be berated by politicians for putting China's interests before those of the United States. Today on the podcast, I want to explore these conundrums with a person who's very familiar with the issues. He's Benjamin A. Jacobs, director of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's China Center. His brief includes looking at intellectual property issues, as well as responding to proposed legislation. He joins me on the line from Washington. Ben, welcome to China in Context.
1: Thanks for having me on the show, Duncan. It's a real pleasure to
0: be here with you today. And you've explained to me that you're speaking in a personal capacity and you're not able to give the view of everybody in the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Let me start by asking you uh, a question, though, which focuses on this intellectual larceny on a grand scale, as it's been described.
1: When you hear it put that way, what's your response? That's a great turn of phrase, intellectual larceny. (laughs) I'll start by saying that intellectual property theft has been a longstanding issue in the US-China relationship. In 2013 and again in 2017, the National Bureau for Asian Research actually convened a commission on the theft of American intellectual property that found that the annual cost to the US economy of counterfeit goods, pirated software, and the theft of trade secrets by Chinese companies and organizations uh, could range anywhere from uh, 225 billion to $600 billion. These are very sizable sums, especially when added up over time. Um, And that's what led to the tariffs on China currently in place. You know, back in the early 2000s, when China's economy was smaller and less developed, this was probably seen as a more manageable issue. But over time, it was generally believed that China's economy would develop, its regulatory apparatus, courts, and IP protection system would become more professionalized and robust, and these issues would begin to diminish in importance. And I think in some areas, we've seen that trend materialize to a certain extent. And over the last few years, China undertook really a a comprehensive slew of reforms to reform uh, its, its intellectual property ecosystem. But the issue, unfortunately, remains very real. Some of the books I've read about China deride
0: it as a country where innovation is stifled by authoritarianism and central planning. And according to this kind of argument, because China lacked ideas of its own, it stole them basically, from more advanced countries, such as Japan and the United States. How does that narrative fit in with your interpretation of China's rise?
1: China, as a country of 1.3 billion people, is highly entrepreneurial and has never lacked ideas of its own. And we're not just talking about the ancient inventions of the compass and gunpowder. And, you know, in technologies ranging from mobile payments to AI to quantum computing, Uh, Chinese scientists, engineers, and designers are really pushing the boundaries of innovation in all sorts of ways. Uh, To give just one example, in mobile payments, China essentially leapfrogged the use of credit cards by making QR code payment systems ubiquitous through WeChat Pay and, and Alipay. Now, granted, the QR code was invented in Japan, but it was deployed at scale in a novel way in China. And you can also point to advancements in AI algorithms and applications uh, like facial recognition or commercial drone technology. And we can pretty clearly see that China has become an innovation powerhouse. And you know, I think China's growing strength in these areas is, is largely the result of having a highly competitive marketplace, a strong science and mathematics education system, and a ton of capital, you know, whether that's private state or foreign, uh, flooding into innovative companies and research institutions. That being said, across the board, you know, I, I think Chinese people and companies have benefited from working with foreign businesses and academic institutions, as well as from being able to access and share information all over the world. And that has allowed Chinese innovators to learn more about technologies being used abroad adapt them and improve upon them uh, as they scale them up to meet the demand of China's massive, ultra-competitive market. While IP theft has certainly been part of that story, I think it pales in comparison to the organic knowledge exchange and fierce market competition uh, undergirded by massive state investment in infrastructure that has supercharged China's innovative capacity.
0: Well, it's certainly true that life in China has changed a lot. And we've had plenty of guests on this podcast over the past year or so who've told us that China's poised to surpass the United States in some strategic technologies, uh, artificial intelligence and 5G, for example. This seems to be the predominant thinking in
1: Washington now. Do you share that perspective? I think China's government certainly has the ambition of surpassing the United States in strategic technologies. I think that's without question. Uh, and the competition between US and Chinese innovators in these areas is incredibly fierce. Uh, but whether China is able to surpass the United States in these areas remains an open question. You know, on the one hand, China's government subsidizes its national champions, scientists and engineers. You know, on the other hand, at the same time, Uh, The US is home to many of the world's most innovative companies and immigrants as well, uh, a great many of whom are Chinese and contribute tremendously to US innovation. Uh, The US also has universities, startups and a venture capital ecosystem that are the envy of the world. In China, crackdowns on its tech industry and censorship are threatening to stifle uh, these key factors that have driven its success. I think innovation uh, comes from the dynamic exchange of knowledge and ideas backed by capital and reliable market mechanisms that enable successful experiments to take root and grow. And in my view, whichever country is best able to support that kind of dynamic environment will experience success. Um, But of course, the innovation required to build things like leading edge semiconductors or jet engines, and this is really important to remember is inherently global. iPhones as we know them could not exist today without Silicon Valley designers, Shenzhen hardware suppliers and Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing. In that sense, uh, US and Chinese innovation, uh, it's, it's really mutually reinforcing. Innovation in both countries will suffer tremendously if we continue down the decoupling path we currently seem to be on. So you're warning there about the dangers of decoupling.
0: And I can see that the US Chamber of Commerce's China Center recognizes that American businesses have played an important role in developing China's economy. And I I expect you can see scope to continue to do so. But we can't overlook the geopolitical situation, can we? The tensions between China and the US are very apparent at the moment. Many countries feel that they need to choose sides So how do you manage business in this kind of
1: environment? Yeah, so this is not an easy question. And I'll say right at the outset, there are no simple solutions. Um, Ultimately, in order to effectively manage contradictions, I think the US and Chinese governments need to draw some red lines around sensitive sectors and dual use technologies where their respective companies will not be allowed to operate. And then, on the other side, agree upon sectors where there can be fair market-based competition between private sector companies that takes place largely independent of state backing and domestic favoritism. And this will enable companies from both countries to benefit from participating in their respective markets. Now, naturally, making this happen is a lot easier said than done, especially when trust between the two governments and even grassroots populations is arguably at an all-time low. But somehow, in order to move forward, both sides need to signal a willingness to abide by the same rules of the road. Just looking at how both sides have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think it's safe to say that for now, the two sides remain very far apart, uh, and this is going to continue to be a real challenge. How
0: has the shift in the political climate impacted foreign investment, particularly from the US into China over the past couple of years?
1: I think the political environment over the last couple of years has reminded companies that conditions in China can change on a dime. And they need to be prepared to react quickly. As President Xi has emphasized the importance of self-reliance and and launched uh, disruptive campaigns to transform how China's tech giants and private education companies and other sectors operate, The U.S. on its end has passed investment restrictions and export controls related to China's military industrial complex and human rights. While these actions, I think, have by no means convinced foreign companies to withdraw from the Chinese market, uh, which is really irreplaceable if you want to complete on a global scale, they have made foreign companies press pause on planned investments and partnerships and consider diversifying certain components of their supply chains to increase resiliency. Companies definitely want to stay in China and invest there, I think there's, there's no question about that, but I think many are now reevaluating their future investment plans based on a new premium they're placing on political risk.
0: I don't want to get too caught up in a political discussion here but I would like to get your perspective on some important legislation which is being discussed in Washington. The Technology Competition Bill. Now, I understand that the House and the Senate are trying to hammer out laws on the themes of innovation and competition. The objective here is to try to prevent the US falling behind China in terms of technology and manufacturing. Can you tell us what what stage the discussions have now
1: reached? So... Currently, the Senate and the House have agreed to move ahead with a conference to merge their two respective bills. Uh, And and those are the Senate's U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and the House's America Competes Act. And they're going to merge them into one combined bill, which the Biden administration is now referring to as the Bipartisan Innovation Act. And there's a lot of overlap between the two bills. Uh, both of which seek to boost the United States' ability to compete with China across a range of areas, uh, like semiconductors, uh, wireless supply chains, critical minerals, and, uh, and both bills provide tens of billions of dollars in new federal science and technology research funding. Um, that being said, there remain a number of key issues that still need to be ironed out, including questions like whether we should give the government the ability to block outbound investments from the US to China, Uh, whether to direct the US trade representative to provide broader tariff exclusions. Uh, Should we make it harder for US companies to import products below a certain dollar value from China? Uh, Should we reauthorize trade adjustment assistance to counteract the effects of cheap Chinese imports on certain sectors? These are all really big questions and they still need to be worked out in conference negotiations. And I think it remains to be seen how Democrats and Republicans uh, will work together to attempt to make that happen.
0: Well, I'm sure businesses will be watching closely what happens. What do you think are the implications for business relations between the
1: US and China? Oh, you're certainly right. Businesses are watching very closely. Um, And you know, I, I think, If something closely resembling the Senate version of the legislation passes, and, uh, you know, the Senate version was a true bipartisan effort, uh, it would help innovative U.S. companies and scientists gain access to federal support that would help level the playing field with China, while also refraining from handcuffing U.S. businesses and consumers in their ability to continue uh, importing Chinese pro- products and, and trading uh, where it makes sense. Ultimately, I think there's, there's a balance to be had. And the passage of a strong piece of legislation with bipartisan support could perhaps restore a sense of equilibrium and help forestall more radical efforts, uh, which could occur should the legislation fail. So it's something we're watching very closely.
0: Well, thank you, Ben.
1: I think you've been an excellent guide through the complex
0: world of uh, legislation in Washington. That was Benjamin A. Jacobs, Director of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's China Center on the line there from Washington, D.C. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.